Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Folklore. My name is Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking with Ian Brody about his book, A Vulgar Art, A New Approach to Stand-Up Comedy. Ian Brody is an associate professor of folklore at Cape Breton University. How are you, Ian? I'm doing very well. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, I wonder if you would begin by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I was, uh, I'm Canadian. I was born in Ottawa, which is, depending on how international your audience is, the nation's capital. So I have lots of scorn heaped upon me. You're from Washington, are you not? So uh, Columbus, you, DC, actually. Uh, Columbus, Columbus, Ohio, actually. Oh, Columbus, Ohio. I'm sorry. I thought you were, uh, you spent some time in Washington. So you know what it's like to sort of be the, the center of power and the, the nasty looks that, uh, your friends might ever, ever so often, uh, uh, give to you. Um, so, um, I uh, did undergraduate and master's degrees in religious studies. And then when I was at Memorial completing my, my MA there, I, uh, discovered the folklore department. My wife was also, uh, was also a student there and, uh, she discovered folklore probably before me. She's a much better folklorist in many ways, uh, Jody McDavid. And, uh, I just fell into it. Uh, my, my master's research had been in, as I said, religious studies, but more, uh, methods of uh, religion, uh, methods of uh, theology, actually. I was using the work of Bernard Lonergan, and he had a idea of uh, how uh, disciplines relate to each other. I mean, his big work from 1972 is a book called Method in Theology, and explains functional specialization in theology. And I was trying to extrapolate that onto a uh, uh, religious studies model as well. But what I found most interesting and what, and what folklore uh, intrigued me was that uh, one of Lonergan's other approaches is the idea that we uh, operate in, in many ways in the realm of theory when we are being theorists. And, uh, you know, uh, but we also uh, in our day to day, we operate in the realm of common sense, i.e. the things that are familiar to our group that we don't go into explanation for because we know them to actually bring attention to them is to uh, it would be peculiar, sort of not as, as good as a wink. And I was, when I was, uh, sort of peeking over my wife's shoulder and finding out what she was studying in folklore, I was intrigued by this discipline that was in many ways the study of common sense. Folklorists might balk at the idea of common sense, but I'm meaning that in that very technical way, i.e., the things that are particular to a group. So that's how I sort of wrapped my head around what folklore was. And that's how I started studying it. Uh, great. And uh, I wonder if you tell us a little bit about how you came to write a vulgar art. Well, it was uh, the very initial idea was in my um, uh, folk literature courses when I was coming across these genres of, of talk that I hadn't necessarily encountered before. And one of them particularly was the uh, African-American roast, the sort of the long form uh, scatological poem. And uh, uh, like a, uh, oh, sorry. I'm now, of course, blanking on the on the precise name. Um, 
Staggerly, sorry, Staggerly is one of the great examples of that. So, uh, you know, violent, sexual, uh, earthy poems. And uh, I was, I realized that, hey, I, I had just bought at a blockbuster uh, bargain bin a copy of Rudy Ray Moore's live uh, VHS because I was always interested in stand up and it was just something that I, that I uh, collected as a fan. And uh, I said, that is a genre that I didn't know about. And I saw Rudy Ray Moore, who did his Dolomite uh, character. And they were these monologues that were African-American, violent, sexual verse. And so I was making that sort of early folklore connection where I'm basically thinking of the kind of things that people do on stage and that here is a genre. And now let's see how it's done on stage. Um, and it's easy to do that sort of motif spotting or that genre spotting. Uh, but as my folklore studies progressed, I realized it isn't simply a matter of identifying jokes or identifying tales or even identifying entire genres. It's looking at these as forms of performance and, um, and about relations. So, but that was my initial entrance into it. So I was trying to figure out what exactly a stand-up comedian is doing when they are on a stage and how that is both related to and then distinct from uh, the kind of performative talk that we do in small context situations in our, in our, among intimates, among family, among peers. Oh, that's great. Uh, and so um, not to jump the con too much, but what, what did you find out? Well, um, basically when, when we start looking at things like, um, uh, two influential works might be a way of, uh, of starting this off. And one of them was Richard Bauman's work on the uh, LaHave Islanders and uh, the kind of talk that occurs in um, at the, uh, the store in the winter. And that's the main form of entertainment is uh, the men would go um, on the winter's evenings and uh, just talk at the store. And, the, and that was basically a form of verbal play. And then building on that, there was Michael J. Bell's work on um, what's it called? The World's from Brown's Lounge, which is about the African-American middle-class bar in Philadelphia, where he did his field work. And he also posited that place as uh, a site of you know, what we would now call a third space, but a site of middle-class play that is not home. It's not work. And the form of play is talk and it's conversation out of which often emerges someone um, who takes the stage as it were, or at least attention is drawn towards him. And in this situation, it's often exclusively him, uh, but attention is drawn towards him and he, engages in a very performative form of speech and then sort of merges back into the crowd, as it were. And that was sort of a trigger for me in terms of the relationship to stand-up and that if we stop thinking of stand-up as an enumeration of genres or even an enumeration of topics and think of it as basically the kind of talk that emerges in play situations where one person has momentarily taken uh, – uh, drawn focus towards him or herself. Um, and the, the audience becomes audience or rather the rest of the people assume the character of audience, allow that form of talk to, to occur. And that talk needs to meet local expectations of fluency and relevance and aesthetics. Uh, that is kind of what's happening with stand up. But of course, stand up is a profession. And so how do you build that model into a situation where you're no longer dealing with your friends, your intimates, your neighbors, but, but strangers? 
Yeah. And I think I really love how the book is structured. Um, sort of almost like a comedy performance itself. It sort of opens, uh, it's got front matter entitled let's go out and welcome to the show. And then the three major parts are the opener, the middle and the headliner. Yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is like, again, like if, if you've ever been to a stand up show, there's often like the first person on they're good, they're trying, but they're not necessarily going to be everyone's cup of tea because they're in this initial situation. So they're often the person that's most overlooked. Uh, and, uh, fundamentally that's where I wanted to put like the literature chapter, the, the, the stuff that would be of more interest to, uh, the academic folklorist and you know, locating it within a specific argument. I think it's, you know, I, I think it's strong and I think it's necessary, but I know a lot of readers would probably be much more interested in the slightly showier stuff where I'm not talking around stand up. I'm actually talking about stand up as it were. So let's say, yeah, you can, you, if you really need to, you can skip this part and these are the things you're going to find most intriguing. And then the middle is sort of in, in many ways, the more up and coming, uh, ha has a, a better grasp of the material and is uh, probably the person who, in retrospect, you will you might not necessarily be going to the show for that person, but later on you might say, hey, that person was pretty good, and see them on a stage or see them on television a couple of months later and say, oh, I was at that guy's show. He was really great. And then the final is the headliner, the one that you are going to um, – the, the person you probably went there for. And that was really kind of a, uh, that third section, which is almost a sort of history of stand up in terms of its various forms of mediation. So, uh, yeah, I just, and you know, you give book structures because structure is a good thing. So I wanted to provide some kind of more or less tacit guide on how to go through it. Uh, yeah. I, well, I think it's excellent. Let's maybe, maybe let's start with the opener, even though it's the part that, that, uh, you suggest might be easiest to overlook if one is not in the discipline. <clears throat> but since this is new books in folklore, tell us a little bit about sort of the 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 disciplinary work that you feel like you do in that in that chapter. Well, um, one of the things that I'm trying to uh, establish, and this is in, in many ways sort of doubling down on the points that I was raising before, is that it's it's very. Um, uh, it's probably a, a first idea is to try and make that one-to-one -one correlation between genres and, uh, and what the folk, uh, what a stand-up comedian tells, uh, because, uh, we like simplicity in many ways. But I wanted to bring two facets into it. One was this, uh, discussion of thinking of it as, a kind of talk between people, the kind of talk that is basically about uh, building, establishing, or reestablishing a sense of community, a sense of consensus without necessarily imposing um, uh, homogeneity on the community. But the kind of uh, small talk that we in, that that we engage in all the time, uh, using. Uh, using terms like um, shit talk or bullshit, uh, you know, it, it is it's playful, but it has a uh, it, it has a meaning behind it in that it is intentionally sort of non hierarchical. And in those forms of talk, um, on you know, at in um, uh, Brown's Lounge in Philadelphia or in the store uh, in on the Lahave Islands or in any of these situations, and and we all experience them in our lives. Out of that comes specific marked performance or at least markable performances. So it's not that stand-ups 
do uh, don't tell jokes or it's not that they're not engaged in some kind of genres but it's more important to think of the entire event as serving some kind of communicative function uh establishing rapport and building community and then out of that kind of talk, certain genres will emerge. So that was that sort of the the, the first thrust of the discussion, uh, breaking down the stand up tell joke uh, tell jokes dichotomy. The second is drawing on work that um, Peter Narvaez and Martin Laba had developed in what they called the folklore popular culture continuum, and then uh, and uh, very much the work of Neil Rosenberg, who. Um, uh, was uh, who contributed to that volume, but but had done much work uh, on his own in terms of the relationship between the amateur and the professional. Because I think one of the things that's important to remember is that stand-up is a profession, and that once you enter into an economic model, once you enter into the idea that uh, your kinds of fluency and competency at performance are expected to meet a certain standard, um that that changes the equation somehow it's it's all of a sudden uh there's just a different set of expectations those the 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 kind of things that you are uh that an audience would be looking for would be similar it's just the the uh the the ability to do so has has a higher bar you're you're not once you're paying someone you expect results basically and so uh in neil's argument for what distinguishes the amateur and the professional, um, it is not necessarily ability. It is about an understanding of audience. Uh, in his work, um, he talks about um, that w- once you are engaged in, in this model, one uh, in an economic model, one of the things that you need to do is um, get a better and better appreciation of your audience's expectations, develop and de- uh, cultivate a reputation for fluency and competence to the point where you can actually, uh, you know, come into a place and be known already for being competent at performance. Because in addition to um, uh, wanting to establish a reputation, you want that reputation to precede you and you want that reputation to precede you in larger and larger markets. So as you move um, from local to regional to national to international models, it is about, uh, I don't want to say transcend because it, it makes it sound like it's being better than, but uh, rather it's, it's about uh, moving away from your local expectations and having a better and better grasp of the expectations of another place, uh, whether that is uh, thinking of large collections, like, like looking at say, like an international market, or getting a sense of all the different local expectations and being able to immediately address those. So um, it's it becomes a – it really shifts the focus on – how much a stand-up is about a stand-up comedy is about understanding audience. It doesn't mean that you are merely catering to tastes. It is about, uh, but it's about both meeting and uh, meeting expectations, but also bringing uh, novelty, bringing an, uh, an idiosyncratic style and, and uh, uh, to an audience that ha- already has a set of expectations, if not about of your performance, then about what a stand-up performance uh, means. So that is a, a slightly cumbersome way of, of talking about that first chapter, but it is, it's a way of sort of um, breaking that genre um, 
categorization model, and it is about really emphasizing the profession as having to do with grasping the audience's expectations and um, um, and grasping different audiences' expectations. So is it so is it then kind of a question of scale? It can be a question of scale, yeah. Um, and uh, b- b- because it's, it's sort of w- what happens when. Um, let me put it this way: when you are speaking to a group of friends uh, and you are engaged in the kind of talk that you might engage in at um, at a convention, or, you know, a, a, an academic conference backstage, or when you are you know at the bar after work, or any of these scenes that that we do engage in, you kind of have a shared repertoire, a shared worldview, a, sh- a shared set of expectations. You obviously bring your own experiences to it, uh, but you don't necessarily need to spell out um, those references that you understand as shared. Uh, once you get beyond your immediate circle of friends, you can't necessarily expect everyone to understand what you are saying. So you need to do one of two things. You need to either learn their sets of expectations, or you need to figure out and worldview and common references, or you need to speak to larger and larger topics that we, you know, we more, uh, we tend to participate in not simply on the local level, but as parts of a regional or a national dialogue. Um, so hence popular culture can, is, you know, as likely to be a topic, uh, politics, global to- politics is likely to be a topic and so on. So it's about, uh, moving away from the locally, uh, circumscribed in order to, as you say, engage in market scale, um, now you always do want to appeal to the local, and one of the things that happens um, in in, uh, in the stand up circuit, and if you've ever seen a stand up show, you probably recognize this. And someone will come to town, and they'll begin their routine usually with some kind of local reference, having maybe only spent the time from the airport to the downtown uh, or to the venue, but, you know, something that they can grasp as local to kind of orient themselves before they go into their standard routines and their standard routines are typically um, on a, of a, a national or international um, reference points. Okay. So after the opener, we get to the section entitled the middle uh, in which you talk about the who, what, and where of stand-up uh, comedy in live performance, uh, and I'm I'm wondering if, uh, and, and specifically, you're sort of you're really getting into the live performance um, itself, right? And, and, and as well as the profession of who is the comedian, who is who is, I think your your subtitles are who is the comedian and who is this comedian. And and so I'm wondering if you could talk about this a little bit more. What uh, and about these issues a little bit more. Well, that that whole section, the middle, is called creating intimacy over distance. And one of the um, again, sort of go, quickly going back to those first principles, the idea is that stand-ups are engaged in the kind of talk that appears towards intimates uh, that, that that happens among intimates, I should say, but is uh, at the same time now being done to people. Or with with people who, that you are strange to, you, you are a stranger. You are there's a socio cultural distance between you, and there are me- and when we get into the sections of mediation, there's a uh, also often a temporal distance and a physical distance between uh, between the audience between the performer and uh, and members of the audience. So um, it is about 
if one of the things that one is trying to do is cultivate an audience uh, and fundamentally orient an audience into um, being primed to understand your text, one of the things that you are trying to do is create that sense of intimacy, create a sense that the person on in the uh, in the crowd kind of knows who you are, can correlate your experience with theirs somehow, and enter into that non-hierarchical friendly talk, the kind of friendly talk that kind of allows for certain forms of license. When you are among friends, you can kind of, and he says this very cautiously, you can kind of get away with material that is risque, maybe engaging in on the borders of appropriate, um, in part because there, there's that sort of, um, shock value. Uh, and in part, it's because you're trying to establish, and if you know someone who is like this, you are trying, you already know that the person is fundamentally coming from a good place and that this is a kind of play that is happening. Uh, when you're dealing with a stranger, uh, someone, someone else on stage that you don't know, that you don't necessarily uh, assume is coming from a uh, good place, you kind of have to introduce that as as an idea. Now you have the benefit of the apparatus of stand-up itself. You have the fact that someone has brought you up on stage. You have the MC who introduces you and orients the crowd in a certain way through a fairly pat biography. You even have such things about like what you are wearing. I mean, even before what you are wearing, there's biology. If you are an African-American comedian, that, that signals something because we live in a society that, that categorizes in that way. That categorization needs to be addressed and, and the performance proceeds from there. If you are, um, if you're a person of size, if you are a little person, if you if you are transgender, or if you are differently gendered, there are other expectations that the that typically the audience addresses, uh, gets addressed to the audience, and then it moves on to that um, different level of um, uh, that that uh, different kind of conversation where okay, this person is someone that I can listen to. Um, and um, so you have the MC, you have what people are, uh, how people look, you have what people are wearing, what, how do I, what does a suit signal, as opposed to something like uh, shorts and t-shirt, what is, uh, what are the cues that the stand-up comedian is providing in order to orient the talk that is about to ensue. And so um, they have, and so even before the stand-up opens, his or her mouth, there's already some kind of, uh, there's already some kind of uh, signal about how the text is going to be interpreted. Then you might have an opening statement, as I said, um, whether you're the local uh, first timer or whether you are an established act, it is about you know, text that establishes rapport, some kind of specific example of common experience. And it's that specific example of common experience that might transcend the, um, uh, transcend the, the the categorical difference that might be occasioned by skin color or, or gender or, or any of these categories. And then talk can ensue from then. And talk can move to general pools of references once the local pool has exhausted itself. I was uh, I went up to Halifax a few months ago and saw Jim Gaffigan, for example, you know, a internationally established comedian that many Netflix specials and so on. And he was in the, uh, the, the local hockey arena, one of the, probably the largest indoor venue 
um, in all of Nova Scotia. And he began, you know, Jim Gaffigan is a comedian about food. He had the benefit that most people were there to see Jim Gaffigan, not simply to see a comedy show. So he had the benefit of celebrity. He had the, the weight of his established reputation. And yet, nonetheless, he began with a few minutes on the Donaire, which is the local Nova Scotia street food, which is, like most street foods, a blend of both delightful and disgusting. And he was able to orient himself within the local food stuff. So it works in terms of his reputation. It works in terms of what Haligonians, the collective term for people from Halifax, think of that food stuff already. And then he could go into his more or less standard routine uh, and only make you know, passing references to the Halifax context later on. He didn't need that anymore. He could sort of, he has aligned, aligned himself. He's orientated himself with, with the crowd and they can just move on. In addition to the already extant goodwill people had towards him because of his um, reputation. So this is, uh, there's one part where you use the term, the intimate other. And I guess this is kind of what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. In that you are recognizing that despite the sociocultural distance, uh, there is fundamentally you are now speaking to this person as if we were all on the same social plane. Um, and I mean, then we can start to turn to things like the actual sort of verbal techniques. What is not simply the topics, but um, one of the themes of the stand up is not simply the intimate other, but some kind of perhaps social commentator, social critic, social anthropologist, a lot of various forms that are sometimes applied to, to the stand-up. But fundamentally, one of the key ones is that they are somehow outside of the corridors of power in the same way that an audience is outside the corridors of power. There's always some suggestion that there is something counter-hegemonic going on, an appeal to an external and shared oppressor, for lack of a better word. Now, that might be very much a conceit. It's very difficult to see someone who is so very coterminous with, you know, the white cisgender heterosexual power structures to somehow sort of give this impression that they are somehow oppressed. And that's why sometimes the comedy falls. But that's also sometimes why their oppression is in terms of sort of the generic stupidity of the world. It's not necessarily the power structures, but we all understand uh, that, you know, it, why do we have these mattress tags? Isn't that silly? Who is doing this to us? It's like, you're right. We do all understand that. So we find that common cause, you know, hopefully a successful performance will, will find common cause. doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in the crowd will do so. doesn't mean that every time the performer does that, he or she is going to succeed in, in finding that common cause. But that is one of the techniques, building a sort of a safe space that often um, pillories some kind of outside uh, power. Uh, so, you know, I might be, uh, I'm, I might be Canadian, um, you might be uh, African American, but we both have this sort of sense of outsiderdom and let's, let's bind this outsiderdom. I need to make a fairly strong rhetorical case in order to allow that conceit to continue. And it is, it's recognized as play. It doesn't necessarily mean that anyone um, will leave the performance thinking that this person is fundamentally oppressed, but it, it is a performance of 
of being othered somehow. It's a performance of not being uh, present to the uh, the realms of power. Uh, you even see that in terms of you know conservative comedy, where they are very coterminous with with the corridors of power, but they still sort of find some kind of other. And I think that's one of the points to make is that we are often finding some kind of noble purpose to stand up and that uh, uh, it's inherently, um, you know, it's inherently progressive or it's, um, or it's inherently a, uh, a powerful way of speaking truth to power. But um, nevertheless, it's also a performance of that speaking truth to power. And so you can see traditions of comedy that are just as oppressive. They are successful because the audience has, uh, or because the comedian has found an audience that they can find common cause with, even if we on uh, outside of that group do not appreciate that common cause and find it actually regressive or, or destructive somehow. Um, so, uh, one of the things that is being played with is the the um, rebellious nature of stand-up to begin with, but what happens when that rebellion is actually um, uh, fundamentally serving to entrench uh, regressive attitudes? That's a difficult area to get into. Right. Okay. And one of the things that you also bring up is you sort of talk about some of these techniques, whether it's social commentator or what else. Uh, one of the things, one of the terms that I really latched onto when reading the book was uh, this term vernacular ethnography. Uh, sort of the way that these, that, that this is sort of uh, its own sort of informal process of conducting ethnography where people sort of are able to look at and evaluate human behavior. Um, and, um, and, and, and that that might be part of an audience's generic expectations of the, of the, uh, comedian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the idea of being this outsider and looking at a place and describing it, I go back to the, um, uh, I mean, it didn't originate with Geertz, but I think Geertz made it so very popular. The idea that ethnography or the role of the ethnographer is to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. And I think that definitely is part of the stand-up, uh, the, the, the stand-up uh, body of techniques, because you certainly have so, taking someone's idiosyncratic experience, a life story that is, you know, strange to the uh, the audience, or at least you know, unfamiliar, and communicating it in a way that makes it relevant and um, you know, funny as well. I mean, funny is always the goal, but. Uh, one of the techniques of funny is to make it uh, relevant and recognizable and that we see the foibles that are the, the cause of, of the, of, of this particular uh, instance of humor. Similarly, we have observational comedy, which is the things that we are already f uh, familiar with that we, we live with going back to the aforementioned mattress tags and um, drawing attention to them to the point where we all go, oh, yeah, why do we do that? And so that's the making the familiar strange. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I take the, the term ethnography uh, reasonably seriously in terms of, you know, how a, an academic might use ethnography. But at the same time, if it is about trying to depict a culture or trying to depict a cultural moment to an audience in order to make a point, whether that audience is 
a literary and academic audience in terms of the sort of more formal structures of ethnography, or whether that is on the casual level of me simply communicating my experience to someone else. Um, that is fundamentally what the stand-up is doing. It doesn't have that bent of trying of necessarily being uh, creating a text that is subsequently subject to some kind of deep analysis. Um, it's there to be a uh, benchmark for uh, instances of humor. Um, but uh, when I when I teach my fieldwork classes, for example, I use the uh, in trying to explain what ethnography is. Uh, I use uh, an expression that uh, Gua Shacker told me uh, once. Uh, he's at the he's a, at the Smithsonian Smithsonian Library of Congress. I can't quite remember Library of Congress. Yes, and um, he described ethnography as deep hanging out. And so once once I sort of had that key to it, um, I explained to my students that you know when you are doing ethnography, you are doing what you do anyway. You all have experience of going to a place figuring out what it is to work in that place and subsequently often telling someone about that place. Uh, the deep part is really doing it with this purpose of creating a text for subsequent analysis and to a third party who is completely absent from it. Um, but uh, but that uh, that is one of the ways that I approach stand-up as well, this vernacular ethnography. It is to describe and, and not simply describe, but evoke uh, a place, a time, an event, yeah, but not for the purpose of analysis, for the purpose of humor. Right. And okay. That's um, one of the things that I also noticed though, is that it, yeah, I think you suggest that it can't just be reportage though. Yeah. It needs, it needs to, uh, I think the key word that you use is you mentioned verisimilitude. Um, and it seems extremely important in my mind to your analysis and I was, and of the comedian's art, uh, why is verisimilitude so important and what do you mean by it? Well, I think it needs to um, fundamentally ring true, even within the performative aspect of stand-up, um, uh, which allows a certain license. It allows for descriptions to be remarkably florid. It, ex it allows for similes or metaphors to be perhaps a little bit much. At the same time, an experience is often uh, something the experience being related has to somehow seem on one basic level plausible. Um, I, I, I'm again reminded of, of Bauman's work uh, in the Lahave Islands, where he talks about yarns as one of the forms of talk that happen. And yarns are personal experience narratives that are going to be, uh, that relates to experiences that were had typically outside of that community. Or, uh, and, and were had when they were away from that community. Um, and they can be fanciful. There's a certain aesthetics to them. There's a certain uh, creativity that's allowed them, but they still have to be understood as true accounts uh, because the, the account needs to be understood as fundamentally relative, uh, sorry, relevant to the audience. Uh, so the verisimilitude is that this can't just be mere, uh, merely fanciful. Even at those times when we, the, when that sort of verisimilitude frame is broken and we have some kind of obviously fantastic element introduced, um, that is sort of grasped as much more of a flourish than anything else. I'm thinking of, um, 
there's some Richard Pryor routines where um, where he describes the uh, his neighbor's dog who is always chasing him and, and uh, you know, barking at him because he lives in a predominantly white white um, neighborhood and uh, and of course he's African American and um, lo and behold one day he's out in the backyard and he's very sad because uh, Richard Pryor had a pet monkey and the pet monkey died. And so he's obviously sad. And the, the dog runs up to him and starts barking and then stops and says, Hey, Richard, why are you crying? And so obviously we've entered into a different level of description at this point. And he sort of consoles him, you know, genuinely feels bad for his, his loss. And then says, well, tomorrow I'm still going to be trying to kill you. It's like, Oh, okay, it's fine. And the story ends, but, but um, you know, we, we have, that uh, that entry into what is clearly fantastic still has a point in this overall uh, discussion about what it is to be both an affluent African American, but an but an African American nonetheless. Um, so uh, verisimilitude, I think, needs, is is uh, uh, one of the things or one of the, of the expectations that we have towards the stand up because it isn't simply a matter of joke telling. And certainly one of the things that we try and do when we are establishing some kind of functional and profound importance to stand up, you know, um, what will often come across in, in the, the academic literature is people who identify certain standups as sort of true or, you know, genuinely uh, important ones, and almost everyone else is superfluous or some kind of lesser than. Uh, and one of the things that we point to is the fact that, well, they are saying something very important. And so it's almost that it needs to be, um, it, it almost needs to be listened to as some important tract and, and important social commentary. And so um, if you're going to be basing something in, if you're going to be making those kind of rhetorical arguments, it is important that you're dealing with, for lack of better words, actual data, as opposed to something that is uh, clearly and uh, self-referentially more uh, fictive, more more fantastic. Um, so that is, is, I think, when we start to try and rationalize stand-up as a performance genre. And when we, uh, and when I say we, I mean sort of you know, the, the culture as a whole trying to recognize, uh, or, or trying to rationalize stand-up's appeal. And almost invariably, we start trying to make arguments for its profundity, as opposed to the occasional moments of, of profundity being one of the many possible techniques that certain stand-ups might choose to frame their kinds of performance. But a stand-up performance isn't, isn't good because it's profound. A stand-up performance is good because the audience that that performance is being geared uh, towards finds it hilarious. If it could be a series of dumb, dumb jokes that you and I might not like, you and I not, not appreciate just because they're dumb, let alone because we might think of them as, as regressive or, or, or whatever. But um, if the audience laughs, it's a successful performance. The culture might need to change, but the, uh, the, the stand-up has proven that uh, they have an understanding of their audience. Right. And so uh, finally, in part three, the, the section you entitle The Headliner, you talk about stand-up comedians uh, sort of as the mediatization of uh, comedy. And so as it goes into broadcast and recordings and how this, and this, this in particular sort of takes them out of the, 
the communication in small groups around which so much uh, folklore studies is uh, focused. Um, so um, how does that work in the comedian, in the case of the comedians? You've kind of discussed this already, but. Well, I'll, I'll um, say it does and it doesn't. Uh, it does because we're, we're now dealing with a different kind of um, uh, a different kind of a specific relationship between the performer and part of their audience. But what we still have and what makes stand up so very intriguing is that we nevertheless, we also have a live audience present to it. Stand up there. Um, there are, I don't think I can think of any examples of stand up that are um, performed without an audience in front. Uh, there might be some ill-advised examples from the early days of trying to record it where they were using something more like a, um, more like a laugh track, but those would certainly be the exception. Every uh, mediation of stand-up requires a live audience. And because every mediation of stand-up requires a live audience, you have two audiences present. You have that small group now on a stage, now you know larger than the group of intimates, but still a live performance that live in a sp specific historical moment and live in a, a specific geographic place. And the, the stand-up needs to appeal to that audience, as well as the undifferentiated audience that is, for lack of better words, at home, at the other end of whatever this recording medium is, or the, this not even recording, but the other end of this medium is whether we're talking radio, whether we are talking um, uh, live television broadcast, um, or when we are start start talking about um, uh, tangible recordings. And I distinguish those because uh, with obviously with radio, with, with live radio and, and live recording, you still have that uh, temporal. Uh, contiguity. I mean, if you go, uh, something that's recorded live or virtually as live and goes out that week, you're dealing with the same basic time era. You're talking about events of the day. If your recording is, is something that is meant to sort of transcend that moment, um, you are going to shift your material so that it is not as um, temporally la uh, laden. So what does it mean to listen to a recording that was made in the late 1960s. Um, and the ones that seem to have a certain amount of staying power are the ones that are not necessarily mired in, in the specifics of 1960s references. I can still understand what they are talking about. And the, uh, the, the, um, the uh, references are more or less um, still ongoingly relevant. But uh, what the recording has this very fascinating aspect where we are still, uh, we still have the live audience captured on it. So we always have their laughter to go by. And then that, that brings it back to the idea that stand-up is a communal event, that stand-up is something that is uh, not simply a one-to-one -one experience, but it is a person speaking to a crowd. And so the person who is listening at home is fundamentally um, also participating in that crowd moment. Which brings the interesting, or for me, the interesting idea of why we can listen to a stand-up recording more than once. Well, we, we are always present to an audience who is listening to it for the first time. So this third part is really about the, 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 the techniques of how um, this spatio-temporal uh, distance is, uh, is negotiated. 
we already have a sociocultural distance in terms of um, someone going from their home community to further afield, but they're still dealing with a live audience and they can make it ongoingly relevant. Once you have the undifferentiated audience of the other end of the medium, you have a different kind of manipulation of the text to keep it ongoingly relevant with the proviso that you still also need to address the fact that there are people in the room with you. It makes me think of Richard Bauman's uh, thoughts about remediation of storytelling in her early uh, sound recordings um, where, and, and it was, was that something that you sort of looked at in, uh, in this section? I, I don't quite recall. No, I wasn't, I wasn't using um, him at this point. Uh, I, again, I, it was uh, as much a study of, as much a study of, uh, what's the, uh, of Narvaez and Rosenberg and, and, and those people. So I was very influenced by, by music as well. One of the other points that is, I think, uh, important about the idea of being on the stage is the self-evident idea that they're using a microphone, that there's a public address system. And I, on a historical level, uh, one of the, the ways I trace stand-up back to an event is the fact that you now have the ability to speak in a normal tone of voice to a crowd that is... Uh, larger than you could if you didn't have a public address system. So you're able to, uh, you know, prior if you historically if people like to trace stand up to the age of vaudeville and, and so on, but uh, that was someone on a stage basically having to yell over a crowd. And once you're yelling, you don't necessarily have the ability to go into subtle digressions and descriptions. When you can speak in an intimate tone of voice, your tone is something that can be. Um, and you have control. You can all, you have the benefit of amplification that you can always essentially, if need be, talk down an audience. Uh, you have the ability to go on long digressions, um, and you can speak in a more intimate form. So intimate in, in, in the sense of it's almost like you're being spoken to across a table, whether, you know, despite the fact that it might be across a theater or across an arena. Um, and so the crooners and the and the, the the study of study of crooning was something that was um, interesting to me. Where you know what differentiated Bing Crosby and uh, Billie Holiday from the predecessors was understanding of the microphone and being able to perform in a way that um, more emulated a natural speaking uh, singing register. And this is about speech, so the same basic premise there. Wonderful. Uh- well, Ian, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you so much. Um, I'll just ask you one more question, and that's what are you working on now? Well, one of the things I'm working on is uh, uh, a local to Cape Breton, which is where I'm based, a local radio contest from the 1950s where things were being uh, uh, songs were uh, solicited that were parodies of songs of the day on a Cape Breton theme. And it ties into uh, some other recent work I've been doing in, in terms of local Cape Breton comic book from the 1970s. And it, it go, it, it's related to the stand-up because it has to do with what happens when you are um, participating in a very small local popular culture where you are going to be reaching a group larger than your immediate group of, of, um, of peers and friends and that common reference, but you're not necessarily speaking to a national or uh, even uh, a particularly regional audience. It is uh, how, do, so how do you make something that is ongoingly relevant for this, for the uh, comic book? Um, 
it was a, a, a local illustrator, Paul McKinnon, who did books for his friends and had all these in-jokes in them. And then he wanted to turn it into something professional. And so he needed to reevaluate his material and create something that uh, so a Cape Bretoner, only perhaps a Cape Bretoner would understand, but you didn't have to know him to understand it. Similarly to these uh, local song makers who were basically um, home listeners for a daytime show in the 1950s, almost exclusively women, they were writing songs that were expressly about local concerns that might be completely esoteric to someone who is not from here. Uh, so, and one of the benefits I have is that since I am not from here, I come to this material and I say, I know it's funny. I, I know that there's jokes here. I don't get them. And so I'm, I'm parsing my way through. So that's the, uh, the dish dishpan parade was the name of the radio uh, show and their Cape Breton songs contest. So that's what I've been working on for the past year or so. Oh, that sounds great. Sounds like a really fantastic project. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Timothy. Thank you. 